Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. It's time to meet two more of the people who make the intellectual life of our city so stimulating. In the second half of episode five of Cambridge Minds, Trish Shiel from the Cambridge Film Consortium talks about silent movies, the great British films of the 40s, and why we should all go to the cinema more often. But first, come with me a few miles outside the city to a beautiful old water mill in the village of Whittlesford. That's where you'll find the Hamilton Kerr Institute, a division of the Fitzwilliam Museum, where they specialise in renovating and conserving old paintings. Its director is Rupert Featherstone. You might have seen him on the BBC TV series Fake or Fortune, where he's often called upon to give an expert opinion on whether a particular painting is or isn't the real thing. Rupert, I want to start by asking you about how you look at a painting. When you see a painting for the first time. How do you appreciate it or examine it? That's an interesting question because according to my profession, I should be examining the materials. I should be looking at the structure. I should be looking at the varnish. I should be thinking, does that look convincing for 1560 or is it a a 17th century copy? I don't do that. I still look at paintings the way I would have done when I was an art history student originally, um, aesthetically, um, emotionally. It's only if I'm being asked professionally to examine something, or once I've appreciated a painting in its in its artistic sense, will I start looking at it to say, well, that looks to be in good condition, or that seems to have been reworked by a later hand, or that's not a very convincing crack allure for a painting that's supposed to be such and such a date. So the, the detective eye, as it were, the, the, the in, inquisitive material side comes second. Having said that, if you ask me to look at a painting for more than about 10 minutes, I can't help but start thinking about how it's put together, who put it together as much as anything else, because the how and the who go very closely together for me. I'm interested in how people who look at paintings like you do think about the rest of the world, the people who just look at, I don't know, let's take a very famous painting like the Hay Wayne, and they go, well, that's just a thing going over a brook, and that's it, That's that's what they see in it. And you can clearly see more in that. Is it about communing with the artist or is it something that's inherently on the canvas that you can see that perhaps others of us can't? Well, you are communing with the artist just by looking closely at something like that. Because if you once you start looking at brush strokes, for example, you can see there's a, a fraction of a second captured where the artist moved the brush in a certain way. And you might be saying, well, is that consistent with a certain artist's work? Or you'd just be saying, that's an extremely skillful way of representing X, Y and Z by using that particular colour over that underlayer with that brushstroke. Or just the fact that sometimes you find a a hair in the paint. Is that his hair or her hair? Is it a brush hair? You know, uh, a fingerprint. I mean, a fingerprint's an obvious, um, it's a slightly sort of a spurious thing because people keep saying oh you can identify an artist with if you get this fingerprint in the paint it's very difficult actually but to see a fingerprint in the wet paint now was that the assistant picking the thing up when it was still wet was the artist trying to get an effect i mean Dura uses the side of his hand or the or the, or the ball of the thumb and, and several other artists do that to get certain textural effects so you've got that immediacy you're communing with an artist in the very moment of creation but standing back of course you also look at it in the sense of a communicating work of art what was the artist intending and can you either by examination or possibly by conserving something, elucidate what the artist originally meant. Because there's all these questions about what an artist is intending can never really be answered in many cases. But sometimes it's completely confused and and, and 
covered up by either dirt or, or repaint or damage or bad repairs or something like that. So there's going back to the material, you are investigating, you're uncovering your almost, um, it is detective work, it's also a little bit of archaeology, uncovering layers. So you are, in a sense, trying to, to feel what the artist did, but also to scientifically and, in other ways, reach back and maybe uncover that, or at least tell people what was there, even if it's no longer visible. I come from the world of music, and I wonder if what you do isn't pretty much the same as taking a multi-layered recording down to its individual components and saying, oh, look, hear what the bass player was doing there. Because what most of us do is we just listen to the record. We hear the sound as it's mixed. But hearing the individual tracks can reveal a lot about how it was made and why. Yes, I think that's a good analogy. I mean, it's quite nice that the ground of a painting and the ground in music, you know, you've got a similarity there. Because the ground of the painting is fundamental in many cases to the visual appearance and also to the way the artist works. The artists work differently if they're working on a, a textured ground from a smooth ground or a white ground, a dark ground. So they will, that will influence them. It's their choice, of course. But also that ground comes through. Now, you may be barely aware of that. You may just say, oh, that's got a warm quality to it. Or there's a dark looking painting or... But often it is down to the, the lower layers or even the canvas or is it, if it's on wood, the wood texture comes through. And the other thing about music is that music obviously is a, a, a temporal art and it changes and a painting stays still, but your eye moves around it. I, I've always found it interesting if you've worked on a painting, maybe for months on end, you don't get bored with it. Not if it's a good painting. You never get bored of looking at it. You think, oh, you never want to see that thing again. But I've gone back and seen paintings that maybe were in the studio for quite a long time and I still appreciate them. I still find the same emotional power. So that's, that's uh, in a way, you can always perform music again and again and again, and it can be different each time, of course. The way you look at a painting is different each time. Rupert, what do you like best? I mean, clearly you've got to have an enormously broad knowledge across centuries and of all different styles. But is there a school of painting that you enjoy most? If I had to choose one, it would be the Flemish primitives, the Van Eycks, the Van der Weyden, the Memlings, the Davids, all those... The people who were working in Northern Europe between about 1400 and 1500. Great but draftsmen. Not just that. It's, it's more than that. They were fantastic draftsmen. They weren't realists, but that's the illusion you get. It's, it's an incredible mixture of control and it's very difficult to put into words because you can do a modern pastiche or facsimile of that and it doesn't have the same warmth at all. And maybe that's because we have photography. It's, it's not just that they were fantastically good at painting a, a, a wrinkled face or a, or a candelabra or... But it's, it's a combination of the emotional response to the way things are arranged, the, the clarity as opposed to, um, I'm trying to think how to put this, it, it's not painterly in the sense that Velasquez or Rembrandt or people like that, and I love them as well. So I'm, I'm being very particular here. I mean, if you actually put me on the spot, I'd have to say that there are more than just that period that I love. But that particular one has an, an emotional punch, which is strange because it looks unemotional to start with. It looks and, controlled. And and if, if I'm going to enjoy those paintings, mm. do I need to see them hanging on a gallery wall or is it enough to have a poster? I've never thought it's enough to have a poster. Um, but again, these are very subtle little clues you're getting when you're seeing the physical object. If a fantastically good digital reproduction, yes, the colour will be fine. You can go on the internet, you can look at the Van Eyck mystic lamb in the most enormous detail with all the infrareds and things. It's stunning. But the actual physical nature of the paint and as you move your head, the textures change, the colours will alter. You'll get all sorts of clues from being in the physical presence of something, apart from the emotional thought of that was painted in 1440 or whatever and look at it now and it's still here and... Some of those effects are very difficult to achieve nowadays. We do 
reconstruction sometimes, and you just marvel at the, the control. Of course, they were doing it all the time, and you know, they started young. But yeah, you, I think you've got to see them. Having said that, um, it's wonderful what modern photography can tell us now, and things that you can't see because they're right up high in the cathedral or badly lit. I mean, we have much more chance of being able to compare and contrast than we ever had before. What do you think makes something like the Hay Wayne popular? Why do ordinary people know that? Why do they know, you know, Monet's bridge over his Japanese guard? What, what is it that makes those kind of paintings leap out and have a, a life in popular culture? I wonder if it's chance more than anything else in some ways. I mean, if you think about how paintings were reproduced before modern photography or whatever, engravings, which were not usually coloured, or if they were coloured, they weren't accurate. How, how would you get to know a painting if you didn't see it physically? And private collections, you know, you didn't have the National Gallery more than a couple of hundred years ago. You weren't able to access it, unless you were a privileged person, the private collections of the country houses. So how did paintings get to be known? It's, it's a very good question. And I do wonder whether early reproduction, particularly early coloured reproduction, you sort of think chocolate box, but you think on tops of things like biscuit that. Tins. Biscuit tins. Biscuit yeah. tins, that sort of stuff. Maybe that does. And maybe it is chance that, I mean, there are wonderful paintings you sometimes think, why isn't this one known? It just never got the exposure. That's not to say that the paintings that are well-known are not great paintings. I think on the whole they generally are. Um, the Laughing Cavalier used to be the one that everyone was um, really aware of. Maybe less so now. The, the thing, things change. But he was reproduced a lot. And my mother, when she was young, had a huge collection of postcards of paintings, which I sometimes leaf through to think, well, that's interesting, because that was famous then, and now you don't see it much. So I think there's vagaries of chance, but there may also be uh, lots of other cultural reasons, which might be very complex of why a certain thing, you know, the, the hayway in the country of British countryside sort of ev evokes all of that sort of thing. It obviously strikes a chord. The Impressionists, interesting to see why they, they became so popular in the early 20th century. A lot of those artists, of course, were not particularly popular at the time, but uh, the way that they were possibly marketed in the widest sense of the world or how that image was dispensed through the world or through... Um, I, I used to work in India and we had a lot of paintings from the 18th century which were made by landscape painters, itinerant landscape painters like the Daniels walking traveling around India, they were the first people to paint in the Western tradition uh, the Taj Mahal. Now, very few people in Britain would have seen the Taj Mahal. So those paintings, which were then subsequently engraved and aquatinted and things, were the first visual information for most people of the Taj, which is now such an incredibly common thing. You know, the, the, the image is reproduced thousands and thousands and thousands of times every day, I'm sure. But it's interesting to think that they actually started, for the English-speaking world at least, the, the, the visuals, as it were, trail do you wish that we took more notice of painting, you know, as a society? You know, I was just wondering about walking around the Fitzwilliam. Even I find myself, you know, if, if a bunch of people walk past Cezanne's apples and don't look at it, I want to say to them, Oi, look, Cezanne's palm, these are great, you want to pay attention to them. Do, do you wish that as a society we were just more interested in it? I think we are in many ways very interested. I mean, contemporary art, of course. Is that all to do with the, the hype and the publicity as much as anything else? But the physicality of the paint is often something that we use to get people interested. So if we get people to come and visit, we'll show them a, a reconstruction. We'll show you how the paint's mixed. And actually, when people begin to see, wow, you can do that, the appreciation of the, the art can often lead from that into other things. Um, I think it's difficult in a museum. You've got so many works of art together. It's not quite natural. I mean, yeah, church, yes, you'd have altarpieces, you'd have things around you, but there's a, there's a sense that things are rather more special when you only saw a few of them. And often a very tiny exhibition I find really satisfying because you've only got a room or so, you can actually look, 
go into a whole gallery um, you've never been into. It's very intimidating. It's quite and I daunting, see, isn't it's it? It's daunting, yeah. but it's also, even for the specialist, your, your brain you know, fries after a while. You cannot look at these things. If you think about a painting, as I said before, which might hang on your wall, you might look at over the course of you know, years, many, many hours, you will have seen that painting, appreciated other things about it. To actually go and look for a couple of minutes at each thing, if that, it's very difficult and it's very tiring. So, Did, did you see Mike Lee's Turner film? I haven't, no, uh, yet. I was going to no. ask you whether mm. you thought it, but I'll widen it and say, do, well, actually, I'm going to ask you, why not? I mean, it would seem on the face of it. Why wouldn't a, a chat with your interests go and see a film like Turner? It's a terrible answer. I've been so busy. I have been. I've been terrible. No, I'd love to see it, and I love Mike Lee's films. And I, um, but in a funny way, also, you can get very annoyed when you know an awful lot about something. And there's, I hate to say, oh God, that's not done right. I mean, there's a lot of silly arguments. Do you remember the draftsman's contract, where all the drawings were very patently, obviously, 20th century? And I was with a friend who was going Argh! whenever she saw them. But you know, that's that's a bit silly. It's a bit silly of us to sort of complain. Um, but do in we, that the way. general point, I guess, is. Do we get painting right when we do it in drama, in film? From what I remember of people's comments on that film, they were worried that it gave the impression that he was a, a sort of um, jabbing away at the canvas in an uncontrolled fashion because it's amazing how Turner, maybe many other artists, they look completely wild and they might be quite controlled. And contrary-wise, sometimes you find a very controlled painting like the Roger van der Weyden's and things I was talking about from the 15th century, you look under the surface, there's this really wild drawing. So that's a wonderful idea. I'd, I'd hate to be um, hidebound and say, well, you've got to make it correct. You've got to have the, exactly the right brush and exactly the right sort of paint. But um, I think there's often, it's amazing what an artist can create and the impression he can create by actually quite careful, very controlled work gives this incredible, I mean, watercolour, for example, Turner's got to be controlled as his watercolours. They look so incredibly free, but if you do those splashily, they look rubbish. You know, you've got to know exactly where to put your brush. And that's one of the things that also excites me about certain artists, people like Caravaggio, they just knew exactly the colour, the brush stroke, the position, and they just did it. And they've got a light on a shoulder. Or, or people like Rembrandt who could create a portrait, and it's almost, you look under the surface, you're looking for all the mistakes they made. They may have altered things, but it's so sure and so certain. And there's a perfect face there, and it's just a couple of brush strokes sometimes, and a bit of modelling of merging. And you, you have to think, wow, when you've tried it, when you've tried to do that, and you see that, and there isn't a lot of working out and little squares and things necessarily, you know, that, that degree of control. Caravaggio is particularly good because he just didn't bother with the stuff you didn't need to know. So the, if you look into the shadows, there's almost nothing there. It's just blobs of paint. It's all formless. But the overall effect is far more, realistic's not quite the right word, but far more powerful and dramatic and real than some of his followers who copied every single little bit and filled in every detail, which is totally unnatural. So... It's, it's that admiration, I find, for the, for the act of painting that is one of the things that comes out of study like this. So we're talking in your office at the Hamilton Kerr Institute. I don't think many people who live in Cambridge would know that this is here in Whittlesford. Everybody knows the Fitzwilliam Museum, but they wouldn't know what you do here. So in a sentence or two, what is your job? Well, I'm supposed to be running the place. I do wonder sometimes. Um, what we do, we train postgraduate students. We, we do research. We have research fellows or, or equivalent um, with us, some PhDs. There's pretty well a one-to-one -one staff student ratio, which is very unusual. It's partly because all the staff are also working on paintings, doing their own research and doing treatments. And we are part of the Fitzwilliam, but we were set up back in the 70s with a, a small endowment and, and a remit to... Um, pay for ourselves. So we have to also take on commercial conservation of paintings for collections that, 
you know, other collections that don't have a person on site or private collections or, or whatever. Um, but those paintings that come through the door, and we never quite know what we're going to get year from year, are the things that provide all the research and the interest. So the big projects we've done in the past um, on medieval painting, for example, the Rettable at Westminster Abbey, Thorn and Parva Rettable, massive great projects, took many years to complete. The research that was generated and the interest and all the links to the um, social history or, or science of uh, history of science in some cases, you know, the technology they were using, obviously uh, art history itself. Those sort of projects are what we, we live for because they, they help us educate the students, they give us the research material we want, and we also get an income, to be honest. Um, and all the people here who work here are conservators who are very experienced in working physically on the paintings, but with a, a research interest, of particularly, you know, one of our staff is particularly interested in historical painting techniques and materials. Someone else might have a particular interest in painting on wood panel and how you deal with those. Um, there's all sorts of avenues. Um, pigment history of uh, medieval alchemy even is, ties into how pigments were created and, and the science behind that. We have a very small number of students, which is great for us, uh, but we, they get one-to-one -one treatment and they get three solid years of um, postgraduate practical and theoretical education. So when I see you on the television uh, in, in um, <laughs> Fake or Fortune and you're looking at a painting, you've got your little headset on, with, with, what are they, the sort of binoculars yeah. that go on Optivisor, top of your... Optivisor, they're called. Optivisor, Optivisor very good. Yes. Um, is that staged or is that actually what happens? You know, if I turn up with an old painting and say, Rupert, look at this for me, is that what you do? It's pretty close. That was a bit staged, obviously, because you have to pretend you don't know anything about it. Whereas as soon as you see a painting like that, you've got a pretty good idea what it is. I didn't know the artist, but I was pretty sure where it came from in terms of, you know, time and date and, 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 and location. This was an old Venetian yeah. master that yeah. they did a programme But obviously you have, to, you have to approach it more slowly um, for, the, for the sake of the programme. And of course, you can be wrong. I've been fooled. I've been fooled by things. So you've got to be quite careful about pronouncing wildly and then finding out it's a fantastic 19th century pastiche that you... I mean, there were some amazing people throughout history who'd be able to imitate. But um, no, it's exactly what you do. The first thing you do is look. You have to look as hard as you can. And that's exactly what you were saying in a way. People don't get the chance to look in a gallery. And when you look, and you look with a good light, because good light is the main thing, it may show up all the warts and all the problems, but you can see little clues to this, that, and the other. And quite rightly in that programme, one of the first things I think Philip Mould remarked on was the pentiment, was the fact that there's an alteration. You know, immediately you think either that's a very clever forgery because someone's actually put an alteration under the surface, or it's good evidence that the thing is a bona fide work of art that's, that's not just a copy or a repro or whatever. But you do look. You don't, you don't bring out the x-rays and the infrareds and all the techniques for identifying pigments until you've had a good look. And it's amazing how sometimes, months later, you're still looking and still discovering stuff. And I remember working on a painting which I'd been spending many, many hours on cleaning, and, and you know, I thought I knew it quite well. And someone else came in and said, oh, did you see that rock down at the bottom? There's a figure inside it. And yes, there was. The artist had painted out a running figure and turned them into a boulder perfectly, but they were just showing through. But I'd been looking at it too much. I, I couldn't see it anymore. And they said, look. And of course, we put the infrared on. And yes, they're all the, the foreground figures had been turned into rocks. It was, it was quite a remarkable painting, actually. Um, but. Uh, so just to go back to your most recent appearance on the television, without wishing to spoil it for anybody who's going to see it on the uh, iPlayer later, mm. at the very end of the programme, a decision is made by some very important people in the art world that what you thought was untrue. You think this painting is by somebody, mm. and they don't. Mm. How does that make you feel? Well, um, in that instance, I didn't know who the artist was. So I knew it was um, 
some follower of Tintoretto, whatever, and lots of features that were reminiscent of Tintoretto, but it wasn't good enough to be Tintoretto. And so I'm very happy that people who know that field particularly well came up with the name. That's one of the things that we have. We are jacks of all trades in the sense that we work on paintings from all periods. But certain painters I will know better than others. So Stubbs or Canaletto or people I've worked on an awful lot, Van Dyke to a certain extent, I feel I know them better. There's the art historical approach where you've studied a lot of sources and influences as well as the paintings and you've looked at a large number of paintings as opposed to our experience where we look very, very closely but possibly at a small number of paintings and then have to take other people's evidence. So the technical side, we will say, look, uh, we think this is, you know, 16th century Italian. Let's look at all the other pieces of information that's published. Let's see if that chimes. Are all the pigments right? We can do all that sort of chronological stuff. Is it consistent with the period? When it boils down to actually attribution, that's not really our role. So although I'd like to think to myself, yes, I think I've got a good idea who that is, my professional role is to provide the evidence for whoever it happens to be, whether that's the owner, whether it's a committee of experts, whether it's a museum, whatever, to make a decision or an informed decision, as informed as they can be, as about whatever the artist is. There may not be an answer that everyone agrees on. I mean, Caravaggio, I've done a lot of work on massive amounts of disagreement. Very few of them are so 100%, you know, you can actually trace them both in the provenance and physically. I mean, there are some and, and there are lots of others which, although you can't do that, you're sure they're right. And then there's a large number which could be by him, could be by a fantastic copyist, could be, you know, a pupil. Did he have pupils? You know, all this sort of doubt. You can look at the technical evidence till you're blue in the face. It may not prove it one way or the other. And in fact, you're more likely to disprove than prove with the technical evidence. You're more likely to find a fact that's wrong. The implication in that programme was mm. that it's not really about genuine study, it's about money. And it's about mm. one organisation, one agency, whatever mm. it was, wants to say it's not genuine because they've got one that is genuine and that, oh, that yeah. will make it more valuable. And You know, that whole business of these millions of pounds of value that are locked up in these paintings, that must have an effect on your industry. It does, and the idea is, well, we'd like to think that we are impartial to the extent that we don't benefit... We charge a fee for doing all the technical, but the fee does not depend on the result. And if we are convinced that something is the wrong thing, it's not got the right pigments or something, and if we say that, then we'd be very annoyed if people ignored that. But if we say everything's absolutely fine, this is completely consistent with being a work by this artist, but you've got to look at the start because there are a lot of people who work similarly, there are pupils, there are studios, etc., etc., etc. Yes, of course, there's a huge financial implication for the owner or the museum, but we can, in a sense, stand apart from that and be as objective as we can. Now, what happens to that information later, it may be upsetting. And if we are asked for an opinion, we may disagree with someone whose other interests are more commercial. But, I mean, any, any painter, if you take a Caravaggio, again, jumping back to that, and if you think it's a contemporary or copy or something not that much after, you know, it's 50, 60,000 pounds at the most and, you know, several million at least, if not... If you find out that it's the bona fide article, of course that's going to influence people. It's very nice when you're actually working for a museum where that doesn't matter because they can't sell it. So if, for example, I used to work at the Royal Collection and they couldn't sell anything. So if you actually came along and said you've got a Caravaggio rather than a copy, no difference except when you lend it out and you have to get the insurance sorted. But, I mean, Her Majesty, I don't think... I think she was quite pleased from all accounts, but I don't think, I don't think she thought whoopee, another, another whatever to spend. Um, but of course, private collectors and dealers, and I suppose we do less for dealers up in Cambridge. If we were based in London, we might get more wrapped up in that world, and I, I'm quite happy in a way not to be. But we love working with, with sort of genuine collectors or, or people whose interest is, 
is not primarily financial. And if we turn out, if it turns out it's not the right thing, they're disappointed, but they're not, they're not gutted, if that's the word. And, and, and conversely, if they find something's really valuable, they're not necessarily going to sell it. Some would say that we live in a world now where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. And there's no doubt that budgets, in terms of state involvement of the arts, are being squeezed all the time. What, what for you is the value of something like the Fitzwilliam Museum to society? You know, why do we need a big museum in Cambridge? I think because everyone will find something different in it. You can't predict. You can't just say, go and look at the paintings. You know, someone would be far more interested in the snuff boxes or the, or the contemporary show of photographs or whatever it happens to be. You can't second guess what importance it has. You, you know that somewhere in that museum there will be something that's important if it's brought out and shown to the people or, or if you draw people in. I mean, I think one of the problems is that there's this image of it being a bit fusty, generally, museums, and, and, and the paintings are sitting there and you sort of, at this, you know. And it's lovely to actually get, when we do get the chance to sort of do the one-to-one -one involvement or, or, or show objects, and I talk to students and sort of say, let's have a really good look at this, let's look at the back and things like that. Can't do it for everyone, sadly. I mean, that would be the ideal, that you give everyone that sort of guided sense in, and then hopefully they'll think, yeah, right, I'll come and look for more. But... I mean, the Fitzwilliam is, a, is all things to all people, it seems to me. There are so many things that are in that collection. I mean, it's too small. There's too much stuff. You need a bigger space to display it all. But, um, and they're always accumulating stuff. And it's really, you know, the stories behind it as much as anything else. It's not just the thing on the wall. What, what's it all about? Where did it come from? Who owned it? Why? How did that get made? And that, I think, would draw people in in a way. And that's, I think, I mean, it, it, it's... It's a bit old hat to say, well, it's a you know, cultural sort of repository and it's all the things that we hold dear. I mean, some people don't necessarily hold those things dear, but there will be something else. And something else the Fitz is collecting now might be something really important for someone down the line. So you can't just say, well, you know, it's a specialist interest. And the Fitz manages somehow, you know, to soldier on. I mean, the, there are cuts and all sorts of things in the offing, but um, it's, it's, it's doing all right, actually. Well, it's time for the Cambridge Questionnaire. <laughs> Rupert, I have given you a little bit of warning about this, uh, but you live actually here then. Yeah, so you I actually live, live here I in Whittlesford. Yeah, I do. Upstairs? I do live upstairs. And how how very lucky is that? Well, it's good and bad. It's a I tied mean, it's, cottage. Isn't it's it? sort of, yes. It's 15 seconds commute, but, you know, if the alarms go off in the middle of the night, I've got to deal with it. Um, and yes, yes, it, it, it's lovely, but you don't get away from work necessarily. So, you know, the temptation is to sort of keep going and suddenly, oh gosh, it's seven o'clock and I'm still in the office. I mean, maybe that happens to other people, but I don't have the separation. So it's probably a good idea to go for a cycle around the village and come back and come in through a different door, I suspect. Well, I was going to ask you then, what, mm. um, it, the first question is, what is your favourite walk? Well, I really like, in a funny way, walking down Mill Road. It's one of my favourites. It's, it's, when I was a student, you wouldn't go near Mill Road, always outside the tracks. Um, you know, the restaurants, the little, little places. I, I like it there. Having said that, you can't beat, actually, in this area, just walking up the garden and to the weir at the other end. And there's a little tiny patch of woodland. It's a bit scrubby. Um, it's, it's meant to be looked after for animals and birds. But, it's, you know, the stuff, you know, just sit in the woods there. Let's have a favourite shop. Favourite shop in Cambridge? Well, I think it's gone. I think it was there years and years ago. There used to be a shop called Garen Records, years and years ago, which had um, lots, of, lots of old classical stuff, and it's now turned into a kebab shop, I think. <laughs> but um, if it hadn't got to be that, then I suppose it's got to be one of the bookshops. I like David's. Always have. 
Um, shouldn't really buy any more books because I've got plenty. But, you know, if I, if I had a choice, I'd be sitting in there or one of the other secondhand shops. And what about a place to have dinner? Where, where's your favourite restaurant? to have dinner. Now, that's interesting because, again, it used to be um, there was a good curry house near, near Maudlin. But um, that, I think, has gone as well. It's, again, probably one of the curry places down Mill Road. Rupert Featherson, thank you very much for talking to Cambridge Minds. It's been uh, very enjoyable indeed. I want to see your Optivisor, though, before we go. Well, have you got you it have here? Have a look through it, actually, if oh, you really come want. On, come okay. on, let's have a look at it. I want, I'm, I'm going to take a picture of you, which I can yeah, post no, on the website. The thing is, have I put it in my bag? Normally, <laughs> I'm carrying the ruddy thing. Here we go. Yes. Oh, right. There you are. I mean, it... So let's describe it, then. Well, it's basically two lenses which are lined up so that your hands are free... I can see perfectly well all the detail on your microphone. I mean, the idea is that you've got, you're working that way, so you've got to keep your head absolutely steady. You know, you mustn't move in and out. But when you're there, and especially at my age, because the, the eyes are beginning to go, um, again, ten, it's not even two or three times. It's very low magnification, but it's binocular, it's stereoscopic, and, yeah, makes you look important. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. Cambridge 105. Rupert Featherston. Director of the Hamilton Kerr or Carr Institute and conservation guru for the Fitzwilliam Museum. And now from pictures on gallery walls to moving pictures. Trish Scheel is as dedicated to film as Rupert is to painting. She's studied and written about movies, she teaches film at Anglia Ruskin University and she runs the Cambridge Film Consortium from her office at the Arts Picture House, an office which incidentally has no windows. If you listen carefully, you can hear the distant rumble of Screen 3 as we settle down to talk about Trish's great loves. British film from the 40s and silent movies from the earliest days of cinema. Let me start with an easy one, Trish. Why would I want to watch a silent film? You know, this is the 21st century. What's, what's silent film got that, you know, the great multiplexes haven't? Well, first of all the language of film developed from all the silent film. And if we think cinema itself is over 100 years old and almost a third of that time films were made in, as silent films, then we have to look at that first third of the, the history of cinema and think about what did they offer. And I think they offered true magic, absolute magic, because all the you know the ideas and all the technical ideas and all the you know imaginative ideas that came from those early years really are just developments they're not new they're more developments of what was already there in the beginning so you just look at say a Melier film and the the wonderful color the imagination the use of animation the trick films if you look at an Abel Gaunt's film and you look at all those lovely shots, those like beautiful, you know, ranging shots, the, the, the faces of people, they tell a story in a way that's very, very eloquent. It must have been extraordinary to watch those. I mean, if you'd never seen film before, which many filmgoers hadn't, how extraordinary must that have been to just, you know, see a, a locomotive coming towards you, for instance? Yes, and I think in the very first stage of cinema, in the first, say, 10 years, it was this, it was exactly this, it was the cinema of attractions. It was about the novelty of the moving image. So, you know, there are obviously these sort of stories about people running out of the cinema when they saw a train coming through the screen. But I think that idea that watching something moving, because people did have photography, so they were used to seeing real life in, in, in an image being captured through a photograph, 
but to actually have it moving is very interesting. And I think in the first stages, people were more interested in the, uh, the moving foliage in the sort of the Lumiere films at the very beginning more than the actual characters because, you know, cinema was really a development of things like magic lanterns. So there was lots of very specialised spectacle effects in the 19th century. So cinema was a development of that. So as I say, in the very first few years... The idea of cinema as a novelty, as an attraction, was very evident. But really, by about 1907, 1910, we then start getting longer films, more narrative-led films, and people engaging in stories. And and that really is at the same time as we we see the development of fixed cinemas as venues rather than as travelling events that would visit towns. Most of us, I think, tend to think of comedy when we think of silent films but I think you're saying that there was more to the cinema than just the slapstick. Oh absolutely absolutely I mean the comedies somehow or other people immediately associate silent cinema with the comedy and that's not to say they aren't good I mean we, we you know we've got Charlie Chaplin uh, we've got marvellous silent comedies but we also have amazing depth range of most emotional experiences Um, Cecil Hepworth's Coming Through the Rise, a beautifully shot film. We also have thrillers, we have the Fantomas series, you know, there's a whole range. I mean, it's absolutely incredibly rich. Sunrise is one of my absolute favourite in terms of silent films. It's absolutely beautiful. And, and you, you know, when I show it, I show it quite regularly to students and to my evening courses when I teach silent cinema and introduction to film studies. And when I show the clips, you can see the audience is so engaged in it, they don't want it to stop. But that is, you know, 1928, we're at the height of silent cinema, but when it was a visual language, which, which could tell its story through lighting, camera angles. It was a development of all the different movements in, in the first, well, let's say from the 1915, we had the German Expressionist movement, and there we had very avant-garde, interesting approach to cinema, and F.W. Murnau came out of Germany and worked in America on Sunrise with um, Janet Gaynor. I mean, she won an Oscar, the very first Oscar for acting in silent cinema, you know. it was. What happens in Sunrise? Well, it's a story of a rural community, a family, a very innocent, naive wife, her husband and and she live in this little island, and a girl from the city, you know, and they're, they're very stereotyped in terms of their positions in the film so she's the wife and he's the husband and then we have this like sort of woman from the city the femme fatale almost and it's it's all done through lighting emotion about how her husband really gets caught up with this woman and then wants to kill her and then sets out to murder her and the scene where he rolls her across the lake is done through incredibly visually led acting and all this, the, the cinematography, the mise-en-scene, everything within the frame is telling this story of how threatening it is for her. And then it's about redemption. It's about, you know, forgiveness and redemption. So it's quite complex. The moral aspect of the tale isn't just, oh, you know, the, he, he runs off with the, with, with the wicked woman. It's actually about rescuing a relationship as well as, you know, destroying it. So, Of course, these days, film critics often talk about the music, don't they, in movies and how the music can help create the right atmosphere and we can all think of famous soundtracks. When they couldn't have a soundtrack and they basically had uh, some old Joe with the piano, what did they do? Well, music is such a crucial element to silent cinema and I think we often talk about silent cinema as being 
as silent and in fact it wasn't because as you say there would have been somebody playing now in in the first stages they could have had a steam driven organ during the traveling shows later on in the venues that if they were if it was a good cinema they might have a little orchestra pit otherwise they had a piano or we see these violets rising organs as well don't we in some of the cinemas now the music today has the same impact you know if you take the music out of a film you often lose a very key element in the emotional engagement for audiences and in silent cinema the music had to do more than that it had to narrate the film so it had to tie these images together through a unifying score in some way or some composition now the silent film pianists played to the film as they watched it but they did get books that would be sent from the distributors that would have like cues in them so it might say give some examples of like a chase scene or a, you know a sort of a melodramatically sad scene or a threatening scene and so there were little bits of music they could copy but overall they made it up as they went along and today we have some fantastic silent film pianists in I was going to say that's an extraordinary skill a, isn't it but you know like jazz musicians got nothing on these <laughs> silent film pianists um so today like when when I set a silent film up here in Cambridge for example recently we just showed Victor Sjöström films and 1919 Sons of Ingmar and um we also took another Victor Sjöström film to Norwich and Barry St Edmunds the Phantom Carriage and I organized for John Sweeney who's one of one of the top British UK silent film pianists along with people like Neil Brand who people will probably recognize from the television so that silent film skill is absolutely makes the event and all the feedback from everybody when they watch these silent films was like marvelous playing wonderful playing and the music really you know does make a difference it really tells the story for our audiences just going back to what's actually on the screen did those early silent film directors discover and design in the first place the grammar of of how to make a film mm. yes yes definitely the very first films that were shot would be with a fixed camera so they would put the camera in one position and then people would move into the frame and then move out of it and they were good at it it was very you know it was very clear that they were working experimentally with it but then you look at say for example look at dw griffith who did both of a nation and intolerance you look at his very early short films even within a year from say 1910 to 1911 you can see the development of close up you can see editing developing but even in the you know the films like uh, the phantom ride which is sort of very early 1904 that sort of period or a kiss in the tunnel for example those little films you can see the beginning of storytelling with editing and that if you put one shot against another then you begin to add information by putting the two together rather than just have one fixed frame and then you know really then we get the french filmmakers experimenting with you know say like ballet mécanique looking at like interesting shots and or if you look at just hitchcock's um early british silent films the lodger for example has a fantastic shot um of I mean this is the 20s we're talking about now so it's not the so much the early days but you'll see like him walking across the ceiling and it's as if it's you know you can see through it and his feet are walking across beautifully you know really interesting grammar of film I mean it was there it was all there by the ni- late 1920s really It's amazing to me that even though we've got a gazillion channels now on our television 
you see far fewer old movies than you did when I was growing up in the 60s. Mm. And I'm just wondering if people are developing an appetite to see this kind of stuff. Trish, where would, where would they go? Where, where can you watch these old movies? Well, I suppose you'd need to go to art house cinemas like, like the Arts Picture House or like London at the BFI South Bank or the regional film theatres and you'll get specialist film societies that might put them on as well. You can buy them on DVDs and you can watch them um, and online there's a lot if you go onto BFI Player or if you go to Screen Online at the BFI or the media techs like in Cambridge in the library we've got the, the media tech here and that you can watch masses of films there, complete films. But I don't think any of that compares to watching it in a, with an audience, that collective experience with live music is, is really what you want. you want. It's like a special event. Let me just explore that in terms of modern cinema briefly mm. before we go back to your speciality. Uh, you and I sitting here now in the Arts Picture House, I'm, I'm waiting for the Pearl and Dean, but it seems uh, it's not coming. Um, People do say that the same thing exists now, that really, if you want to watch a movie, it's all very well, you've got your widescreen HD at home, but you don't really appreciate it until you come to a movie house and you get your, you know, your fizzy drink and your popcorn. Does that still apply for you? Yes, I, I, I agree. I think, I think there's, it's an event. It's a, a shared event. And I think watching a film with other people changes the way you read the film. So, so say, for example, if you look at it at home on your own, you're not going to laugh as much as you will if you've got an audience watching, you know, something, <laughs> okay. uh, a comedy. But I think also you miss things when you watch it on a smaller screen. Having that beautiful surround sound or having a fantastic screen with the best quality image on a big screen... That is what changes the way you look at the film and, and you immerse yourself more into it, you know. And I think we need to look at each development, technical development in cinema, as valuable in its own right. So when we see the development of sound, now we are so used to very, very bright, interesting sound effects. We, we have Atmos, we have layers of sound. And when you unpick all that and just look at the moving image and then the way that the music then, the, the sound effects, the Foley sounds, all those things all build up. It's very, very rich and a very, very strong experience, as you say, very multi-sensory, alongside all those very strong images that you get. OK, let's go back to a slightly more naive world in the cinema in the 1940s, because you're big on uh, the 1940s. I'm so thrilled that I can finally find somebody I can talk to about Way to the Stars, surely the best film ever made. Um, what's the appeal for you? I mean, you're, you know, you're not a woman who grew up in the 1940s, so what is it that attracts you to those movies? Well, it was mainly because I, I am very interested in the films of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. So I came to those films through silent cinema because... Give us a few names of movies by Powell and Pressburger okay. that we'll all remember. OK, so if we think about A Matter of Life and Death, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, The Red Shoes, Black Narcissus, Gone to Earth... And these were not just critically acclaimed afterwards, they were very popular movies at the time, weren't they? They were blockbusters. Some of them were, yes. And and it's, so as a result of looking at those films, you have to put them in the context of wartime British cinema. 
and the changes that occurred in the film industry as a result of the war, the types of films that were shown, what was appealing to audiences and the way rationing, for example, affected people's cinema-going habits. So cinema actually, cinema-going increased during the war, as did female audiences. There was a rise in female audiences. And so the types of films that were being made from probably 1943, when they were using films to sort of encourage women to be mobilised for conscription for women, uh, then I think we see films with female subjects being very, very clearly evident. So when you look at that social, economic, you know, um, and the war, with, you look at the films within that, you see Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's films stand out alongside a lot of the, a lot of other good films like David Lean and Laundering Gilead and people like these these people who are all making films with an intention to support the war effort, which is the key. And uh, some of them do them. have big, powerful women's parts, don't they? They do, they do, absolutely. And um, the thing about Michael Powell is he's interesting, he's quirky, like A Canterbury Tale was a very strange film. But he does bring in very strong female characters. Now, feminist theorists, when they look at these films, they debate whether these strong women are, are merely there to be put down or are they women being recognised as, you know, quite strong characters compared to, let's say, in the first stage of the war, we have the fighting front as the key story and it's the male subjects who are the strong characters and the ones that we're all engaging with. So when you start seeing these films with women as central subjects, I mean, for me as a film historian, they're really interesting and the Pound Pressburger films the quality, the creativity and the technical expertise was really far ahead of their time. Poor old Michael Powell got sort of overtaken by events, didn't he? And then was kind of rediscovered much later in his life. Where did he, as it were, go wrong, if, 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 if go wrong is what he did? Well, I think he worked really closely with Emmerich Pressburger and I think they were a magic duo. Um, Pressburger wrote a lot of the scripts, they worked very closely together... They were both credited, all their films. They never, ever said a film directed by Michael Powell. It was always Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. And then after the war, things changed. The, the funding structure changed. I mean, during the war, Rank had actually funded a lot of independent British filmmaker. Now, Rank, Arthur Rank, came from the milling, so Hovist Rank, we all know from the Hovist, don't we? Um, but he support and left them to, to work in their own creative way. But after the war, I think the accountants started taking over and I think creativity was, you know, set against budget. So if we take, for example, The Red Shoes, which is 1948, so it's just after the war, it's technicolour, it's glamorous, rationing is still on, you know, there's this sense of we still need to keep everything, you know, in, in tight control. And they made this incredibly glamorous film. Well, the rank organisation with the new accountant at the time, they just walked out of it when it when it was shown as, you know, the rushes. They just weren't bothered. And so it was got to America and it was shown in a little film uh, house there in America for a couple of years regularly until finally it got acknowledged in this country. So you can see... That is just an interesting example. I'm not saying all his films were like that. So A Matter of Life and Death had the first royal performance. So, you know, it's a different story during the war. But afterwards, it's sort of as if they were... It was as if he was... Michael Powell and Emmett Pressburger were just sort of on the edges then. Now, The Red Shoes is a fantastic film. It's a classic. So you can hardly believe it had this sort of start to it. But by the time you get to the 50s, 
mid-50s, I think that their relationship, their partnership was coming to an end. And he went off on his own and made, made various films like The Age of Consent, I think he made. He made something towards the end of his life that people frowned on as being slightly pornographic. Well, that's Peeping Tom. And that, you see, if you think 1960, Peeping Tom was made at exactly the same time as Psycho. And both of them have these characters that are very, you know, dubious characters. But Psycho somehow got past the censors, whereas Peeping Tom was too modern. It was too ahead of its time. He had empathy for a a flawed character, and it didn't have that strong moral condemnation. It was incredibly creative, but disturbing in a very strong way. And after that, people wouldn't fund his work in, in, in Europe and Britain. And it was it was the, you know, the 1980s when you put about Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Martin Scorsese who finally brought him back into... Because Scorsese's a big fan, He's an he? absolutely, you know, amazing support for, for Michael Powell. So, I mean, and, and Michael Powell had some time over in Hollywood, you know, as, as a sort of director in residence for, the, for them, you know, for working with these these really interesting filmmakers in America, but if it hadn't been for that, um, and, and some re- very strong support in this country, I think he you know, wouldn't have had all that recognition until a bit later on. So I'm really pleased that that you know, brought him back into the public domain, really, uh, because the films are so incredibly clever and intelligent and creative. So you're an academic. You write about film and you lecture and you teach... Film. I'm wondering, Trish, what you think of film criticism. There's a lot of it, isn't there? You can't really pick up a newspaper or get on a website without seeing reviews of movies. Um, do you have any favourite reviewers or do you not really bother with the modern cinema? <laughs> well, I, well, I do I'm not bother. accusing you of being yeah. an old yeah. fuddy-duddy no, or no. anything. I think you have to see the reviewer in the context of the film industry. And the reviewer is key for supporting knowledge about the latest films, key for getting a perspective, you know, an an historical perspective on the latest films, and also to support film going. Now, my role, I think, is slightly different because I'm contextualising film and engaging audiences in film in a different way. So I'm based in in, in a venue... What I do really is I say any person from, you know, school through to, you know, through to our older audiences or our evening class people, I want them to love film. I don't want them to take my views. What I want them to do is to find their own voice about what it is they love about film. And really, I feel my job is to give them a toolbox to unlock the film and how to read the film. So I'd say rather I'm working more in in, in a way not to give an opinion that people can trust what I say, but rather to say, what do you all think? And let's explore those as ideas. So it's more conceptually led in terms of people discovering their own love of film. What's the role of the Cambridge Film Consortium, which is the Picture House and Anglia Ruskin University and one or two other uh, parties you're the education officer for it so is yes. that basically what it, it's there for to popularize film make people interested in it in the local area yes and it's I suppose you could say well why do young people let's say 18 to 25 need an education officer when they go and watch films anywhere you know I mean there's audience there's lots of multiplexes for people to go and watch so I think it's more about saying that's one type of film that you can watch 
And my job is to say to you, actually, have you considered world cinema? Have you considered looking at subtitled film? Have you looked at maybe some films from the 50s? Have you looked at some archive documentary films? Have you looked at creative art one, like maybe coming through the, you know, the, the artist, the moving image mode? It's about saying, look at the range. You know, it's not just one type of film. So because mostly it's a Hollywood product, and we have a massive range of films coming from history and contemporary cinema right across the world. And like to see all those different voices is so enriching and, and you know, broadening for their perspective. So my role really is to say, don't be afraid. <laughs> it's, it reminds me so much of what people say about music, you know, how frustrating it is that people grow up listening to the same half a dozen bands and the same records recycled on the same radio station all the time. And you want to say to them, oi, over there there's there's Americana, there's folk, there's jazz, there's all this other stuff. I guess that's really your role in, in the film business. Yes, and it's not to denigrate what's popular. It was because, you know, what's popular has its own value. And, and a lot of students study that as part of their course. So I'm obviously linking into what courses they're studying at college or university. But it's about comparison. It's about understanding its context and where did it come from. If you see like a film, a contemporary thriller, it's got a history. So like, say, for example, all these Scandinavian thrillers, the reason I put the, the 1919 Sons of Ingmar and then talked about Scandinavian silent cinema at, here at the cinema was really important to give like the contemporary um you know, Keeper of Lost Causes, which is a picture house released last year, um, to give it a context. And, and, you know, we had speakers in to talk about the way women are presented in the crime thrillers. And we looked at the, the you know, the way Scandinavian literature develops into the cinema from the early, you know, Selma Legoloff in the you know, late 19th century into contemporary writers. So there's a, there's, a, there's a history to it, but it doesn't mean you're saying, I'm not going to look at contemporary films. You're saying, get the overview you know I was just wondering whether at the end of a busy week of lecturing and writing and all the other things you do with movies do you ever actually go out to the pictures <laughs> <laughs> well I go to the pictures every day you know I just drop you know if I want to watch a film I can nip into the screen and have a look um when I teach and I haven't done this for a year or so but when I teach introduction to film studies I love going with my groups and I never know what the film's going to be. I never read a review. I don't watch it beforehand. I go with the group to the film. And we just choose one out of the brochure. Or rather, I'll choose one that I think is challenging, that they're less likely to go on their own. And then we have a post-screen discussion. And I love doing that. I but love you wouldn't it. go and watch, I don't know, the new James Bond or... Uh, I would. I would watch you, anything. You, go, you would? I would. I'd watch anything. Because I just think cinema's marvellous, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's all magic in its own way, isn't it? I think I would just say my role is to engage audiences and to contextualise. But I've got to say I would watch it here because I like the environment of an art house cinema. Oh, That's I do. And do you know why? It's because you can take a glass of wine. In. Yes. Isn't that lovely? Because yes. most cinemas, that's the last thing they want you to do. But it's, it's, it, it kind of feels like a sophisticated place, doesn't it? It feels lovely. And also, you know, it's a type of audience, isn't it, that, like, enjoy watching it quietly. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, if you have a Kurosawa film, it's no good having, like, people crunching popcorn in all the silent moments. And checking their Facebook on their smartphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you don't want to tell any of that. So I think it's, it's a good just, job it was saved then, it, isn't it? Really? Marvellous. <laughs> 
There were moments of panic, weren't there? Oh dear, the arts picture but, but house but won't Cambridge, be here. Cambridge Good Lord. audiences are so loyal, and and it's a fantastic cinema to work in because of that. There's so much energy here around watching cultural film that I just think it's a marvellous place to work because of that. You've got that constant, right into the evening, you're working, you, you know, you, you sort of go down the stairs at eight o'clock sometimes, and it's, you know, a hive of activity. So what a marvellous, you know, venue to be in, really. Well, here's where you have to sing for your supper, because <laughs> I didn't warn you about this, but at the end of all these interviews, I ask people uh, a couple of questions about their experience of Cambridge as a town. And now, how long have you been here? I, I'm, oh. That's not a Cambridge accent I'm hearing, no, is it? No, it's not a Cambridge accent. <laughs> I've been here almost, well, 16 years in December. So since December 99, I started my job. And, um, yeah, no, I'm from Wales. I'm from North Wales originally, but worked in, you know, various places around the country. Um, but I, yeah, so you're going to ask me so about you, Cambridge. You think of yourself as from Cambridge now, do you? I think I'm a Welsh person. I, I've still got Welsh identity. I can't let go. It's too beautiful to let go of Wales. But I, I, I feel like I really belong here now because I'm so part of the fabric of this particular venue. OK, well, let's try this one first. What's your favourite walk in Cambridge? OK, so coming through down towards the Mill Pond, where the Mill Pub is, I love that walk across uh, along the river. And then as you come through, it's really beautiful with all the river and the little noise of the water. And then along up to the Fitzwilliam. And I just think that street's beautiful. I just think there's something elegant and cultural and really Cambridge in that walk. OK, and do you have a favourite shop? Um, well, I, uh, well, it's very close to the cinema. And in my lunch hour, I really love going into John Lewis. And I love looking at all the fabrics because it, all the colour, all the light and the colour in there really lifts my spirits for some reason. I don't know why, but I love it. I think it's because I'm in a, a dark space. So, but well, You I, spend all your life in the dark. In the dark. So it's really lovely to go, you know, five minutes, have a walk around looking at fabrics. <laughs> all right, Trish. And what's your favourite restaurant? I like De Luca because I love Italian food and it's just up the road and we've used it a lot in the film festival and I've just loved going there. Trish Shields, thank you very much for being our Cambridge mind. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. It's been good fun. The lovely Trish Shield talking to us at the Cambridge Arts Picture House. Thanks to Trish and to Rupert Featherston for being this month's Cambridge Minds. We'll have more soon. The series is a TDC production for Cambridge 105. I'm Trevor Dan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>